I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we're here for the King and Culture podcast, where our goal is to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, welcome back to episode two. Uh, We're really glad that you are here with us. Seth, how are you today? I'm doing pretty good. You know, slept in a little bit, ready to go. There you go. Slept in. Uh, it's funny. We got some good listener feedback from some folks uh, who enjoyed the first episode. One guy said, my head is hurting from that episode. So if you missed us, uh, last time we talked about this giant word, epistemology, and uh, we're going to continue that theme. Uh, Seth, remind us again, what is epistemology? Epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do you know things? How do you uh, know that you know things? And how do you know things about certain things? It's quite the broad situation. So when you hear epistemology, you think, how do you know stuff? And so last time we talked about knowledge of God. Today we're going to talk about knowledge of God's world. Next time we're going to talk about... Self-knowledge. Yes, we're doing like a three-part series on knowledge, knowing God, knowing God's world, and knowing ourselves in particular. So we said we're critiquing the hell out of culture. We mentioned this last time. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't feel like this is going to be just some angry, ranty podcast. Not yet. (laughs) I hope not. We're trying to present a positive vision of God's world, but that also, and just who God is and what's real, that involves necessarily then critiquing the things that are in opposition to that, but uh, we're not here to just be grumpy, right? Yeah, I mean, part of it is when sin stains God's world, I am frustrated by it, and when it causes us to misunderstand God's world, it's frustrating to me. And so there is a measure of uh, you know, frustration that I feel that may at times make me seem a little grumpy, which is maybe a fair accusation, but when we, even when we say critique the hell of culture, there's a desire that even as the kingdom of God moves forward by the spirit of his people, that we can be a part of pushing back the curse. And I do think part of that includes thinking clearly about what is true, what is false, and what it means to exist in God's creation. Well, and because we're influenced by culture, we are necessarily, whenever we're critiquing culture, also kind of critiquing ourselves. Absolutely. Because we buy into the culture's view of things far more than I think any of us really want to admit, but it's it's definitely the case. Yeah, the danger is if we start as a church saying the culture is out there and we are critiquing them and lobbing grenades over someone else's fence. But yeah, we are when we critique, when I'm critiquing the culture, I'm critiquing me who's a culture maker within this info culture. And yeah. so I'm implicating myself and our church even because we are we are part of creating the American Western culture. And so as we think about how God and culture interact with each other, uh, you wanted to start with, hey, let's talk about knowledge. And so um, today we're talking about knowledge of God's world, knowledge of the world. How do we know what's true about the world? Why is this important? This is important because we're constantly interpreting what's going on. There's never a situation we encounter where we're not through some lens deciding, interpreting, and assessing we like to believe that we are these objective people who encounter these facts outside of ourselves, but the reality is is that we are persons with experiences and agendas and values, and we're always subjects encountering objects. And so doing that purposefully, not on accident, matters if we want to rightly interpret the things we're seeing around us at all times. Yeah, we got to see things as they really are. So as we look at this, we're going to kind of talk about a cultural view of knowledge of the world. We're going to talk about a biblical or what we might call, I think what we'll call here a two books view. Yep. So cultural view, two books view, and then do some kind of case studies about having how a more biblical approach actually might help us think through some specific issues related to God's world. So uh, cultural view, give us, and maybe there's multiple cultural views. So we're painting a little bit broad brush here, but what's a very common uh, approach culturally for kind of 
knowing the world. Yeah, the biggest or most popular cultural view right now, that's kind of the default mode that most Americans exist in. And I would say it's even the default mode that most church attenders exist in is what I would call um, the Kantian view, or it comes from Kant. And Kant understood that the world was divided in between two big sections. Section number one was the noumenal, or what she understood to be the spiritual or the unverifiable, unfalsifiable value realm. And then there was the phenomenal or phenomenal, which was like you think about a phenomenon, something that happened. That's the realm of science, of reason, of testing, observing, repeating. And so he would teach that you have objective knowledge um, or facts of the phenomenal realm, and you only can have values or opinions of the noumenal realm. So faith is a, is a value, it's an opinion, knowing God, believing the resurrection, believing the second coming, uh, trusting in scripture, all those things go into that upper noumenal, not real, not knowledge realm. It's, fin- it's just noumenal, it's spiritual, it's not, uh, we can't really um, know it with any degree of certainty. And in the bottom realm, the realm of science, so-called, or of scientism, in the realm of the scientific method, that's the bottom realm, and we can have certain knowledge of that realm. So that creates what we consider the fact-value dichotomy, where there are values, like Luke, you may think that vanilla is the best ice cream flavor, and I may think that chocolate is the best ice cream flavor. That's just a value. Um, But when we start talking about Christ and the resurrection, Kant would put that on the same level as favorite flavor of ice cream. Hmm. It's not false. It's not true. It's just an opinion. Whereas that's kind of where the, well, that's true for you. That's not true for me. We are assigning spiritual things to the noumenal realm, and we're following Kant. It seems like that that feels a bit like how people even will talk about what's allowed in public discourse. Yes. Right, so if you're talking about the phenomenal stuff, the fact stuff, hey, you're welcome to contribute to that conversation. You're welcome to study. You're welcome to give, you know, kind of voice to what you know or believe there. But if it's all of a sudden... Like, this is your values, this is your faith. Well, keep that to yourself. Yeah, and that comes down to even a discussion about politics, about whose voice gets to count in the public square in politics, is is when you're buying into the Kantian view, you say things like, um, well, all that matters is that we don't harm people. And that's, harm is verifiable. But the reality is, is deciding what counts as harm requires value-based judgments. Yeah, there's some morality there. Yeah, there's ethics, there's morality. What I think is harmful to people based on what God says, um, other people may not consider as being harmful. And so everyone, whether they want to believe it or not, is bringing noumenal assessments in the phenomenal realm in order to assess and weigh and give value and strength to their opinions as they interpret facts. So the subjective is always encountering the objective. There's no such thing as a purely objective realm and no such thing as a purely subjective realm. So even though the Kantian view at some point breaks down, uh, it is the the rhetoric that dominates public discourse, and I think it's in a lot of our hearts and minds subtly when we say we can argue about the science, quote-unquote, but I don't really want to push my opinion on Jesus on people because that's like trying to evangelize that vanilla is the best flavor of ice cream. It, well, and, and it feels as we're, if we're talking about knowledge of, especially knowledge of reality, where this feels really important is it feels like the verifiable stuff, well, that's real. Your personal values, eh, not so real. It might be good for you, right? It's true for you. It feels good for you. If it helps you, great. But it's not real. 
And what we're trying to do is say, no, there's things that are real that can't be seen. And there's things that are real that kind of transcend that reality. Yeah, you can't really understand the natural realm until you understand it as a self-revelation of the creator of God who is showing himself to the cosmos. And until you really see the breadth and depth and height and and of, of all that God has created as creation, as revelation, you're still not seeing it for as it is. You may have partial understanding, you may have true partial understanding of it, but you won't have a full understanding of it until you understand it as revelation, as creation. And so um, re- Jesus' resurrection is real. It's not just preference. Um, the second coming of Christ is real. It's not just preference. Um, God working in history is real. It's not just a value. And we're not deciding between blue and red. We're not deciding between the Steelers and the Broncos. We're deciding between... Wow, that's an easy decision. It is. Actually, not Six really. They both, they both stink right now. Uh, I think the Steelers will get 12 wins this year. Oh, we'll see. So we'll see on the next episode. So, yeah, it is, it's all real. This, this distinction between the noumenal and the phenomenal, I think the scriptures say the whole earth belongs to the Lord. So it's easy for me to kind of imagine uh, more of a secular humanist. I'm thinking, you know, somebody that would run a kind of, uh, you know, humanities department at a big secular university saying, hey, 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 keep your, keep your dumb values out of the public square. Um, so it'd be kind of easy to see how people in that sense would buy into this Kantian or, you know, what we're calling kind of this cultural approach. How do you see Christians actually sort of get suckered into this as well? Where are we vulnerable? Well, I think, one, we're vulnerable to just believe that's true. I think probably most Christians, professing Christians, would say, yeah, that's fine. This works for me. I think if you look at this, the study on what people who say they're evangelicals think, a lot of them think Jesus is great for them, but I'm not going to be out there telling people about him. So that's one big mistake. I think the So second, our willingness to kind of just keep our faith private yeah. is actually a, an implication that we've actually bought into that view of the world. Yeah, a privatized view of our faith that doesn't extend into the public square is buying into Kant's epistemology and what I would consider an idolatrous epistemology. And and I think that's one big way we buy into it. And, uh, and another way that's like that is buying into the belief that we can't have true and certain knowledge of religion or of Jesus. And so it's kind of like the idea of the metaphor they give you if you take religion 101 at ASU. I had a religious studies minor at ASU, so I took all the liberal religion classes. And, you know, the, the classic examples they put, a big... Um, picture or image of an elephant up there mm, and they yeah, say sure. you know that the one ki- the elephant one, and the blind men elephant right? and the blind men yeah and one person feels the leg and they say this is a tree one person feels the side says it's a wall one person feels the trunk says it's a snake but lucky for us the liberal religion humanities professor can see the whole elephant and <laughs> right. that is the one person in the story who sees the full picture that all these dumb religions are seeing in part but Surprise, surprise, it's the humanities professor who's the enlightened one who sees everything. And so it's actually extremely arrogant to say all religions basically are looking at one aspect of the truth because it is the person who is looking back and making an assessment of all religions who is also holding to a universal explanation of religions and a universal explanation. It's saying I have a vision that no one else could have. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the Muslims, the Hindus, the... Um, Christians, the the Mormons, they all see in part, but I see in full. I'm enlightened. So that's an exclusive claim, just like saying Jesus is the only way to God. Yeah, so if Christians feel ashamed about saying Jesus is the only way to God, 
I think a big part of that is because we've bought into believing that humanities professors see the full thing and we only see a part of the thing. Whereas I, I would argue that the reverse is true, is that the whole world belongs to the Lord. By faith, we understand that he made the universe and that the creator has stepped into the story. The author has become a character and he has revealed himself to us. It's not because of who we are, what we've done, but because of who he is, that he has made himself known and we have received it. It is revelation. It is not discovery. And so it's actually a humble position because we were found, we were not the finders. So we have said that this podcast is going to be kind of swimming in the deeper end of the pool. You've taken us there with uh, Kant and Numenal and Phenomenal. Um, that's maybe the cultural view, this fact-value dichotomy. What would be the biblical or what you're calling the two-books approach? Yeah, so the two-books approach is the historic Reformed approach, and it kind of goes back to Calvin, but even then it goes back beyond him. But when it's kind of more formally articulated, he talked about how God has written two books. Book number one is the special revelation given to us in Scripture. Um, that's actually kind of book number two because that came after. Book number two then would be the general revelation, God's creation, that we can look at the trees. Romans 1 talks about what can be known about God, namely his invisible attributes, has been made known to them such that they were without excuse. So God has truly revealed himself and truly revealed creation in such a way that he's kind of written two books. And so we think about when it comes to knowing what's true in God's world, rather than creating a hierarchy of noumenal on top of phenomenal, where phenomenal is objective, noumenal is subjective, we'd rather have two side-by-side accounts. One is scripture and one is creation. And both of those are objectively true, but we encounter them as subjects. So that's an important distinction, even as we think about these differences in approach. That first, that cultural approach said one's good, one's bad. This kind of Reformed biblical tradition is saying, no, 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 they're both good. God's world is good, and God's word is good. Yeah, and here's here's the key, I think. And so if we think book one is scripture and book two is creation, that if you minimize or dismiss one of those two books, you make a gigantic error. So if you Hmm. eliminate the book of creation and you only hold on to the book of scripture, you become a fundamentalist. And if you eliminate the book... Now listen, I like the fundamentals, right? I don't want to err. Yeah. You know, the key to being a good baseball player was you had to have the fundamentals. So what would be wrong with being a fundamentalist? Uh, so if the fundamentalism is holding on to the funda- fundamentals of the faith, then nothing. But if a fundamentalist is denying evidence to support your position, or if a fundamentalist is a position that is non-critiquable, hmm. and a fundamentalist is a dogmatic, arrogant dismissal, and if a fundamentalist is denying the fact that you can learn from creation and learn from non-Christians on some things, and I don't want to be that type of fundamentalist. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want that either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So fundamentalism 100 years ago was good. It meant clinging to the fundamentals of faith. Fundamentalism now, to me, basically means uh, a low view of non-Christians' ability to um, discover things in the book of creation. Yeah, we'd be kind of saying, like, I don't have anything to learn from anyone who isn't a Christian, and usually who isn't also a Christian in exactly the way that I am. Yeah, fundamentalism tends to create tribes, uh, whether those become cults or not is basically dependent on how violent they get, but yeah. it certainly creates a tribalism, a fundamentalism, my tribe versus other tribes. There's not a posture of receptivity, humility. So, so, so if there's only the book of, of scripture and there's not the book of the world, you end up fundamentalist. What if you kind of do the other? If you do the other side, if you only hold on to the book of creation and minimize the role of scripture, you become a naturalist. And that's basically when you're buying into Kant's view that, yeah, scripture can be there to 
help you with your emotions and make your funerals meaningful and slightly less sad. But in terms of like actually dealing with reality, we minimize that. And so on the one side, you're a naturalist and the other side, you're a fundamentalist. But I think a healthy evangelical reformation view is this two books holding together. Great. So if, if we have a faithful holding of those two books where we are holding on to scripture and holding on to God's world, that feels like it should lead us to some places that might be a little bit different than just having a Kantian or kind of the typical cultural view would be. So um, just, what, what would just, be some... Just on that note, I yeah. do think it's important to note that one of those books is more authoritatively interpreting the other book. Yeah, good. So scripture, the book of scripture is the lens through which we can more authoritatively interpret the book of creation. At the same time, the book of creation can cause us to revisit our interpretation of scripture. And before that sounds dangerous, that sounds like a bad idea, but you think about how the Roman Catholic church for a long time interpreted scripture to mean that everything revolved around the earth and the cosmos, right? The sun revolves around the earth. Well, why? Uh, Well, because the Bible says the sun rises, the sun sets. It does not say the earth revolves around the sun. Right. So on the face reading, you go, okay, the sun rises, the sun sets. That is because the sun moves, the earth stays still. The earth remains forever. It's like the, yeah. the deal. It wasn't until someone was reading the book of creation. and so, re- Hold on a second. I think this might work different. I did the math. I looked at the stars and actually... The earth revolves around the sun, and it was heretical, huge problem, because you are disagreeing with Scripture, but that's not true. They weren't disagreeing with Scripture. They were disagreeing with the Roman authoritative interpretation of Scripture. And so it is a sense in which sometimes when we study the book of creation, it causes us to go back to the book of creation and reinterpret it, or book of Scripture and reinterpret it, and go, maybe this text actually is a person speaking from his perspective, so it's perspectival poetry. It's not... um, it's not David writing authoritatively on the nature and the flow of objects in the universe. And so um, while the book of Scripture predominantly helps us understand the book of creation, especially as it relates to things like the goodness of creation and the distortedness of sin, it's still fair game that there are times when um, the interpreting the book of creation makes us go back and ask the question. It doesn't make us reinterpret, but it makes us ask the question, have we actually interpreted this right? Or is there a different way that maybe Moses meant this? Or is there a different way that maybe Paul meant this? And so there is a dialogue between the two books. One of the things I like about that is that I feel like especially, um, you know, if you're a Christian, I think especially if a young person, like I think of my, my daughter who's a freshman in high school, who, you know, she gets the science class and kind of starts, I think, to go, oh, I don't know, can I believe this? Can I believe what they're telling me at all? You know, what about oh, evolution and da-da-da? And, and I don't necessarily want to go down this whole road of, of to what degree do we embrace evolution as much as to say um, if you embrace a two-book view, there's less to be afraid of. Yeah, it's mutually interpretive. And so I can enter in here, I can enter in there, and there's it's less of an anxious encounter because it's not creation against the scriptures, but it's actually the same God created both. Cre- yeah. He wrote the scriptures and he authored creation. And so just like in the last episode, we talked about how God is logically consistent within himself because he cannot lie. Um, He also creates a world that reflects his goodness, which means that there is a sense in which it is testable, observable, 
repeatable. So the reason the scientific method makes sense is because God upholds the universe by the word of his power and that the universe was designed to be in a reflection of who God is. And so the reason we can even do scientific method um, over and against the Kantian view, which there is no grounding for why you can even do science, but the fact that the universe is uniform and testable, observable, repeatable, is rooted in the fact that it's revelation. Yeah, it makes me think of my father-in-law, who has a PhD in limnology, which I believe is like freshwater biology. He's S-M-A-R-T. And, um, you know, he's a follower of Jesus. And it's been a while since I heard a word I've never even heard before. <laughs> yeah, limnology. 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 Yeah, I don't don't ask me to spell it. Anyway, you know, I'll talk to him about this. And what he'll say is, you know, the more I study scripture, the more I feel like it makes the world come alive to me. And the more I understand science, the more I go, oh, yeah, well, this is God's world. And he doesn't live in this kind of disintegration. But it actually, the more he gets to know both of these books, the more everything is really integrated and whole. And and I think that's a compelling vision. Absolutely. Even when you get down to just the, the basic laws of gravity thermodynamics, nuclear fusion, and you think about the Trinitarian God who is in relationship with himself and how at the core basis of the universe there are particles relating to one another from the bottom up. Uh, It's a picture of who God is. And so that's why the two books view, I think, is helpful is because creation really is speaking and asking to be studied. And the other piece is the scriptures, that they're um, authoritative, infallible, inerrant, and they're true, but both we can misinterpret. Hmm. And we both need we need to be humble in our interpretation. I mean, if anything, this pandemic has showed us that we need to be humble in our interpretation of the scientific so-called facts. Sure. Yeah, that there is, everyone with an agenda can spin the facts. The way you interpret the facts is is a huge deal. And it's same with scripture. It We'd be remiss if we didn't think that we were um, as equally capable of falling into misinterpreting scripture, that we were as equally hmm. capable of falling into misinterpreting uh, the data of the so-called facts of the universe. So if we take a two views approach where we are looking to God in in his revelation of the world in the scripture and in the creation, that's going to lead us. So let's look at some kind of case study type things or just situations maybe. What are some issues that we might view differently if we hold to a biblical approach versus to more of a cultural approach? Yeah, so one big one is the idea of psychology and counseling or biblical counseling versus psychology. That's a a big question. To what extent does neuroscience and, uh, you know, psychological inquiry, both qualitative and quantitative, how, to what extent does that shape the Christian's view of how people change and what he has in mind? So if you just took the one book of you, you'd be a naturalist psychologist, evolutionary psychologist. Yeah, Bible doesn't have anything to say. That's just your values. That's just your private beliefs. What you need is this medicine or this attachment theory or et cetera. Yeah, and you basically reduce all of humanity's psychological uh, framework as being somehow a response to evolutionary survival. On the other side, you would say that there is absolutely no insight that can be gained from psychology, which even talking about it like that, it's not like it's a monolithic thing where they all agree with each other and everything. There's a lot of schools there. Um, but all you need is basically the Psalms and the Proverbs and nothing else to understand what it means to be human. And that kind of comes back to the Reform- Reformation doctrine of sola scriptura, which is that scripture is the final authority. Mm. 
Um, whereas I think a lot of people who espouse sola scriptura actually buy into what I would call a nuda scriptura, which is scripture by itself or scripture all naked, meaning uh-huh. scripture with n- no other book. Hmm. And so a nuda scriptura is a one book view, whereas I think a sola scriptura is still a two book view, recognizing that scripture is the final authority. So if psychology is saying something that, d- that contradicts scripture, hmm. um, but there can be a lot of insight. We can listen to it. Yeah, and then evaluate it in light of scripture, and let scripture have the final word, rather than just kind of plug our ears and go la 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 la. I don't want to hear that. Um, yeah, we so can I, actually let the scripture speak. Yeah, so I think Christians should have a overwhelmingly positive disposition towards psychological insight. However, there should be a concern that in many places psychology denies the doctrine of original sin and wants to frame everything in terms of survival and nothing in terms of culpable sinfulness. Yeah, and a lot of psychology would come from a, a an epistemology that would say there is no God, right? Yeah, this, you're just a product of your biology. Yeah, so boiling. So there's it, plenty to critique in psychology. Yeah, but it doesn't. But this approach would say there's also things we can affirm. There's things we can learn. There's things that we can let scripture evaluate. Yeah, so I think if you're going to go naturalist, everything's survival, and that's explaining everything. And if you're going to go fundamentalist, then everything is sin, and that explains everything. Mm. But I do think that there's a measure of both of those things in play and discerning that takes wisdom. You can't just dismiss one whole school altogether. So that's psychology. Uh, you just said, uh, we kind of talk natural and creation. That obviously makes me think about kind of the environment, right? The environment's a big deal in our culture. Uh, some people... Climate change, global warming, trigger warning. Yeah, some people think it's a huge deal. Other yeah. people maybe don't think it's a very big deal. Um, how does a two-book you know, Christian reformed view of the scripture and the world, how does that inform maybe how we think about the environment, the actual physical creation? Yeah. So I think that if you read Genesis uh, one through nine in particular, uh, there's a covenant with creation. God cares about his creation. Proverbs says that the wise man has high regard for his animals mm-hmm. and suppose like the fool that the thrust of the moral teaching in the Bible is that humans are to be, taking care of creation. Adam was a gardener. He was to work and keep, which you could translate that, serve and protect. Mm. Um, he was to serve and protect the creation. And so a Christian view that dismisses the role of creation care misses the entire uh, Old Testament thrust on human's relationship to, to, to the environment. On the other side, you have like a dismissal of that. You have all motive to care for creation is basically panic survival Um, if we don't hurry up and regulate the snot out of all this stuff uh it's over it's over yeah it's done and because there's a sense of like this is this world's all there is there isn't any way that god could or would intervene or has a plan or has power over it it's just this is all there is yeah and i think we can make it worse i mean all we have to do is go swimming in a polluted lake to think man humans have a lot of power to make things worse sure but i don't think we have the power to destroy the earth i think there is one who has the power to do that, and he's promised not to do that. That, that was the promise in to Noah. Uh, he will not destroy the earth again um, through water. He, he talks about in First Peter destroying the earth through fire, but he, that's more about a purification, a burning off, just like the way you destroy and you purify uh, gold, you burn off the impurities. And so hmm. there will be a destruction of sin, but there won't be destruction of this earth. And so having a fear motive in creation care is naturalistic, but having a faith motive is 
I'm actually pretty biblical. And actually, even if you think about what it means to be human, there is, uh, this is one of my favorite anecdotes when it comes to public policy on this issue. Oh, cool. So this is a great... Is this, is this going to be the manure story? This the is the classic manure story. manure story? The classic... I'm sure everyone knows about this manure story. The classic uh, You've told me before. <laughs> it's, it's actually really interesting. Yeah. So don't draw too straight a line between what I'm saying and what I'm recommending for public policy, but... <laughs> this is descriptive, not prescriptive? Yeah. So... It may become prescriptive, but <laughs> I don't know how strongly I hold it. But the great, capital G, horse manure crisis of 1894. Google it, everybody. Google we'll, it. Uh, we'll have information in the show notes. No, yeah, I, I, don't, yeah, no. I don't actually know if we, we have We will show not notes, have any information. <laughs> you know, take my word for it. Okay. But there was a concern. Crisis was developing, especially in New York City, urban planning, because the people were reproducing so fast, and they were all needed horses. And there's so many horses and so much horse manure <laughs> that they did the math. And in X number of years, New York City was going to be covered 12 feet deep in horse manure. And the world was going to be over. It was going to be And you think New York City's a mess right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you think the city's dead. But, the, but there, was a, there was real math and there was real fear and real concern that there is horse manure is going to end the earth. The methane levels... The amount of of this this waste. Where are we going to put it? What's going to happen? It's going to the the cause or the ripple effects through so many habitats will destroy the world as we know it. We need to end the horse thing. We need to create a culture of bicycles and walking, whatever. So the prescriptions aren't any new. But then the uh, the car was invented. Along comes the Model T. Along comes Henry Ford. Yeah. Guess what? No more horse manure crisis. Now the we have an uh, exhaust crisis. Yeah, right? now we have an exhaust crisis, you know, and we can debate that, but we have a so-called exhaust crisis. Sure, and, right. and the whole point is I think that that's illustrative of our view of humanity, that God put humanity on the earth to subdue and have dominion, to create culture, to innovate. Mm. And I think that our flinch to regulate ourselves out of problems rather than innovate our way out of problems, is rooted in a deficient view of what it means to be human. I think humans are innovators, creators, culture makers. And I, my gut is that the way that we solve this climate crisis is through innovation, not regulation. There you go. The, the great horse manure crisis. The great crisis horse manure of, crisis. Of long ago. Yeah, I don't but know, that's I don't an example of like a two was. books. Well, the two books view is humans are image, yep. imaging the creator God, yep. and they're creating. And well, that's great. and there's another little application I want to make here. That's uh, I wouldn't want to get militant about this. I wouldn't want to police this, but it is something we've taught Molly and I have taught explicitly with our kids, is that we want to call the creation creation rather than nature. Yeah, and I've noticed even as you've been talking, you keep saying creation, the creation, the creation, and I think that's because nature sort of sounds like this thing that just kind of happened. Whereas creation sounds like this thing that was created. And because it was created, I want my kids to walk around and go, I'm in God's creation, not I'm just in some nature that happened. Yeah. Um, again, I wouldn't want to start critiquing people who are doing that or start playing word police. But at least with my kids, that's how we're kind of trying to give them a view of knowing the world the way it actually is, which is made by God. Yeah, that's really good. Even like nature sounds like there's natural and then there's supernatural. And now you're kind of sounds like you're buying into the Kantian view of um, there's the the place where God is and there's a place where God isn't. Right. Supernatural is where God is. That's yeah. that realm. 
and then there's a natural God mm-hmm. isn't mm-hmm. versus creation is infused with designer language. And so I think that's huge. So we've looked at psychology. We've looked at uh, kind of environmental issues. Uh, maybe one more uh, place where having having this view, uh, we talked earlier, I think, about diet, exercise. Yeah, uh, diet I'm and sure exercise. everyone's super excited to hear what you have to say about this. But uh, Yeah, diet and exercise I think is a helpful one. One, I think we're in this cultural moment where we're in a position of chronic feasting, where it's feasting, feasting, feasting all the time. And that leads to a variety of epidemics or pandemics, probably epidemics because it's regionally located. You know, <laughs> I don't think there's a... Pass the a, gravy. Yeah, yeah, I don't think there's a feasting crisis in certain parts of the world. But it's epidemic, a variety of health concerns. And whereas I think in Scripture you see a pattern of food as fuel and there are seasons where you feast and there are seasons where you fast, but you're not feasting all the time. And so there's like even a wisdom in the way that God sets up the dietary patterns of Israel um, and of some of the prophets that there is, there are seasons where you're feasting and seasons where you are not feasting. And I think even that mentality for Americans would be countercultural. Like mm-hmm. what if you didn't have to have a feast every meal and get exactly what you want and eat to the point of engorgement? <laughs> That's, you know, sure. different. So there's even that sense of eating good food and the way that God put humans on the earth to um, subdue and have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, that there's a, a work-based bodily engagement that there's assumed in the scriptures that we plow the fields. You know, even going back to the one book, two book thing, scripture, book one, tells us, look at the ants. Book two, oh sluggard, look at them. Look how they work mm. and how... We're meant to imitate the ants in the way that we work with our bodies and be productive. But now we're in such a um, industrialized, digitized world that very few of us have jobs that actually requires to work with our bodies. Mm. And so there's bodily degeneration that you have to maintain or fight with artificial exertion called exercise. <laughs> that sure. If you talked to somebody about exercising 100 years ago, they'd say, what are you talking about? Yeah, that's you just mean, work. You mean plowing the field 14 hours a day? Right. What do you mean keep this body fat off? <laughs> Not a chance, you yeah. know? And so there is a, because of our cultural moment, we have to look back at the way that God made us to work with our bodies, to not feast all the time. So there's wisdom there. Then at the same time, you can look at the way that exercising to the point of breathlessness uh, reduce, reduces risk of cardiovascular disease. You can look at the the... the nitty gritty macronutrients of fat has nine calories per gram and protein and carbs have four calories per gram. And so you can get down all the minutia of it. But at the end of the day, if it's not about caring for your body that God gave you, then it's just self-worship. And, Mm. and I think there's a real tension in a lot of those things, but book one creation gives us a purpose and vision and direction for the body and our cultural idols just use it as a disposable pleasure center Mm. and Christians get bought up into that when we maybe don't use it as a disposable pleasure center sexually like all those people do, but we use it like a disposable pleasure center in other ways, mm. maybe also sexually, you know, we're all Christians. And are, we're not totally immune from some of that. I would say that there are a few <laughs> sexual centers at our church. Like so hundred percent, hundred percent. Anyone yeah. in puberty or above. Yeah. And some even before puberty. So, <laughs> but then the two books kind of gives us some wisdom on what do I need in terms of sleep, what do I need in terms of calories? What do I need to do to avoid cardiovascular disease? Because I yep. want to be around and play with my grandkids if possible, or great grandkids if even more possible. So, so there is like there's wisdom and direction, and evidence or science, and there's biblical motive, biblical desire, biblical standard, 
and a recognition of both those things can be helpful. So bottom line, as we seek to have an epistemology, that is an approach to knowledge that is shaped by God, who's um, we're made in his image, therefore our approach to knowledge is filled with love, it's filled with relationship, it's filled with a a moral vision. We also then want to see God's world the way it actually is, which is um, created by him and uh, with lots of things to learn, lots of ways to see God in the world he's created, and and then those special revelation of the scripture that informs us not only about how to be saved and how to have a relationship with God, <laughs> awesome as that is, but also tells us about what life should be like and is like in God's world. Absolutely. And just to summarize where we've been both in our last episode and this episode, knowledge of God is about covenant friendship with him. It is personal investment experience of him. It's more like playing the piano than it is like learning calculus. And because we love him, uh, you know, God is known to the extent that he's loved, as Herman Boving said. Because we love him, we want to listen to him, and we listen to him by carefully reading the two books he's given us, Creation and the Scriptures. Cool. Well, this has been fun, Seth. I appreciate, uh, man, it's just fun to kind of, uh, I, a lot of my desire of this podcast at times was just to sort of wind you up and sort of let you go. And uh, that's a little bit of what this has been. And so I know that there's times when people are like, oh man, my eyes are crossing, my head's hurting. Um, but I think that this is actually a really worthwhile thing. Uh, so much of just our flinches as we relate in the world come out of the, this, these fundamental assumptions about epistemology we're not even aware of. And so this is actually a really helpful thing to kind of lift the hood, see what's under there, see what's really running. And uh, we'll do it again next time as we look at knowledge of self, self knowledge. What does it mean to know yourself, self-awareness? Man, that's a big deal. Big deal. Yeah. Cool. This is really fun. We'll go. And uh, thanks for joining us. If you have uh, comments or questions, uh, send them our way, email us. You can find all our information at gateway.redemptionaz.com. Uh, please share this as well. If you know some people that would benefit from this or would be encouraged by it, uh, pass it on. And uh, that's it for today. We'll see you next time.